And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop. Thank you for joining us. As one of our nation's fastest growing sectors, it would seem that the cannabis industry is on the precipice of complete liberation from the confines of prohibition. With nearly every blue ticket presidential candidate advocating for federal legalization and public acceptance at an all time high, marijuana policy reform is beginning to seem inevitable. With an economic upside that's hard to ignore, it's really no longer a matter of if, but when. But when happens to be a good question. Although business is thriving, it's not without a lot of regulatory challenges that no other industry has had to overcome. Banking, insurance, patient access, and standardization are just a few of the issues that stakeholders have had to work around on a daily basis. It's also subjected to a higher level of scrutiny than conventional businesses. But despite the extraordinary challenges, the industry is thriving and economic upside is becoming harder for lawmakers to ignore. Pro-cannabis measures like the States Act have been passed in Congress, but they have yet to see the light of day in the Senate. And until we have regulation to support the industry, stakeholders will continue to operate around the barriers. That's not really a bad thing, considering that the industry has, for the most part, policed itself on its own for greater good, but it is a double-edged sword. While the lack of regulation has allowed for untethered innovation, research, and development without the regulatory red tape of FDA oversight, it has also left room for bad actors to raise red flags that invite more scrutiny of critics. Take, for example, the recent news about the numerous deaths caused by tainted vape products, which could have been avoided had there been effective regulatory standards guiding manufacturing best practices. And even though the CDC hasn't identified a single culprit and deaths were related to non-cannabis ingredients, the tragic events give anti-marijuana lobbies enough ammunition to shoot down legislation. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm excited to introduce our guest. Steve Shapiro is the founder and CEO of Superior Organics, one of the first Arizona-based companies to secure a license to own and operate a dispensary. Since then, his dispensary business has expanded to also include an edibles kitchen, extraction lab, and cannabis cultivation operation. He was a financial advisor for 25 years before entering the industry. And having studied cannabis and its history from an early age, Steve knew that the government wasn't truthful about cannabis, and he spent years collecting articles about it. In the mid-1990s, he had an opportunity to meet Jack Herrer, whose book filled gaps of knowledge missing in his own research and strengthened his resolve to pursue a path that would lead to his work in the industry. By the time the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act passed, he had already become an expert and was well prepared to open his first dispensary, and that happened in July of 2013. As a patient, he's experienced firsthand the therapeutic benefits of cannabis, and having lost friends and family to various health issues, he's convinced that cannabis could have helped them, if not saved their lives. Steve, thanks so much for joining me. I'm looking forward to this. Well, thank you for having me. Well, you're certainly welcome. You know, I've been fascinated by your background because you spent so much time in finance, but I understand that when you were younger, you worked in a pharmacy and you are now a dispensary owner. Tell me a little bit about how different that is from your experiences as a youth working in, in a pharmacy. Sure. Well, I did work in a pharmacy back in high school. But uh, in those days, I did read uh, some of the pamphlets on the sides of the bottles and was kind of amazed at the different uh, side effects and complications of some of the most dangerous drugs that were being prescribed. Um, also, at the same time, I was learning about marijuana and, and always felt it was important to read up 
as much as I could on these the different issues. And everything I was reading on marijuana or cannabis that was positive was coming from outside our country back in those days. You didn't see anything positive within the United States. No articles, no studies, no research. It told me that there must be something to the research that these other countries were finding. And um, over the years, I was uh, lucky enough to meet uh, Jack Brer out here in Arizona. He visited in 92 and spoke to Normal and introduced me to all the uh, amazing things the hemp plant could do, as well as the rest of the picture of what marijuana could do. So we anxiously awaited these laws to change. Actually, our law passed in 96 the first time. The legislature just kind of said, no thanks. 97, here in Arizona, a man by the name of Tom Horn, he wrote something called the Voter Protection Act. His law protected us, supposedly. Well, in 98, there was another medical marijuana law passed here in Arizona. And that law said that the doctor could write a prescription on his pad. Federally, it's illegal to write a prescription for marijuana on the doctor's pad. And so that law kind of got negated, despite the Voter Protection Act. And it wasn't until 2010 that we really got it back on the ballot. And uh, when we were voting on it, honestly, uh, at the time, I did not believe this law would, would pass. Uh, until I sat down with my parents about a month before the vote, we talked about it. They'd, they'd explained that they were going to vote for it. And I, I pretty much knew that. I had them convinced for, for a while at that point. But they told me all their friends were voting for it, for the medical bill. And I was quite surprised by that. And what my parents told me is they all talked about it. And they said, you know, we've all seen this drug war not have any progress. And they were tired of seeing tax dollars thrown at a wasted drug war. Number two, they all knew their kids had tried marijuana, and the ones who stuck with marijuana, they, they turned out okay. And lastly, they looked at the list of what were the qualifying conditions, and they went around the table, and they realized that in their little group right there, someone had seizures, Alzheimer's, chronic pain, chronic nausea. The, they almost covered the whole list of, of qualifying conditions just in their little group. And they said, you know, we don't want the government telling us we can't use something if, if it might help us. And honestly, that was the, that was the moment my light bulbs kind of went off that this, this law was going to pass. Because if we had the support of the older generation, the vote was a shoe in Well, I was mistaken. My generation didn't vote for this. The 30 to 50 year old crowd did not vote for this. But fortunately, the older generation did, and we won by 3,500 votes on that Prop 203. I remember that so vividly. It was such an amazing coup that it actually passed because it, it, you're right, it was sort of touch and go. I mean, there was a lot of question. And it's interesting that you mentioned Jack Herrer. I was going to ask you about that because. Meeting him must have been so inspiring. That man was so passionate about this issue. And I interviewed his son last year, Dan Herrer, and he told me a lot about growing up with Jack. He was a Korean War veteran who just felt completely betrayed by the government when he started learning about the positive benefits of cannabis, well, particularly hemp at first. You know, here he was fighting for our freedom and, and the government is sitting here lying to people about something that really could be so beneficial, not just for human health, but also for the environment. So it's interesting. That must have been an amazing experience to meet him. I completely related to him in everything you just said. Uh, his book, and I, and I picked it up because I knew he was coming. I picked it up a few days before and read it. And it felt like home. I actually, in college, I used to collect the newspapers, and I would lift out the pot articles. I still have most of that file of all these pot articles, and these are some of the articles that I explained earlier that you know, you'd see stories from Spain, and it was helping people with pain or cancer out of Italy or, or whatever, or glaucoma or whatever it might be, it, it really it opened my eyes. And that's actually how I kind of convinced my parents as well, was to show them these stories. Um, I did my own research. I was very excited for to see this law would, would pass. Since then, 
you know, as you know, in the state, there's been a lot of challenges, unfortunately, but here we have uh, an amazing medical marijuana program in Arizona for many reasons. I mean, you were one of the first applicants to receive a license to do a dispensary at that time. And I know that there was so much opposition to it, but I can imagine that it might have been a challenge just wondering if there were going to be some issues with opening it because there was no protection on the federal level. And there were dispensaries that were being shut down just because the DEA was, you know, still targeting states where they had passed legislation. Tell me about some of the experiences you had back then. It was a little scary at first. We made sure to follow all the rules. We felt, fortunately, where we opened uh, in Superior, which is a small mining town here in Arizona, there's about 3,000 people up there, a real charming little town. It's real pretty. And uh, fortunately, we seemed to have the support of the local police and the local government up there. We did a really good job of, of working with them. Uh, when I first showed up in 2012, I, I, I came to town. They needed help figuring out the zoning a little bit. So I, I met with the city and tried to explain to them that, look, if, if they don't set up zoning rules, the dispensary can go anywhere. And it wasn't actually until the week of applications that that city put their zoning rules together. So I had to scramble really quick when we did our application uh, to get everything done. It was uh, a lot of challenges back then. But um, there were concerns about um, traveling when you're bringing wholesale product into the store. Um, You definitely went the speed limit or less. (laughs) You didn't push it, that's for sure. Um, because in the first month, you know, first month or two, even the local police, the state police, they didn't know the program very well. And so you might be at the mercy of an officer who didn't know the program in the first couple of months. And that was, that was a little scary for some people. So it, it took some time to get past that. Now, now there's still some challenges. I mean, you still, I think as a patient or an employee or an owner, you should be very aware of Prop 203, the law, the regulation, and the rules that the that the state put out so that you don't ever have a problem. Yeah. Well, and patients, too. <laughs> We've had our share of issues there. For sure. Like the Rodney Jones case, for example. For sure. Um, well, yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. And there are a few others as well, though, that I remember the, the student at ASU. Yep. That was a tragedy. Oh, it was. It really was. One of the stories that, uh, that we're proud of up actually in Superior was there was a woman that, uh, was a grandma actually, that was taking care of her grandchildren. And someone decided that because she had her card, she, was, she, she wasn't qualified to, to be the, the custodian for these grandchildren. And uh, fortunately, our law protects that. It doesn't allow discrimination like that. And uh, we were able to help her twice uh, prove it in the courts to keep the family together. That's great. So looking at the landscape right now, challenges that are still facing Arizona, I know there's a lot going on in the legislature right now to sort of expand upon the original Prop 203 that passed here. There have been a lot of legislative measures here in State House. Some have gone through, some haven't. But what are some of the challenges that you think dispensary owners in this state are facing right now? The large, I think the biggest one, and the one that really concerns me as we look at recreational, or I like to call it social use, actually. Um, That's a good term, actually, social use. <laughs> yeah, we, you don't you don't go recreationally drinking. You you socially or you know use it as adults. Right. <laughs> to me, one of the biggest issues is banking. As we go and you know look towards you know social or adult use, without without solving the banking issue, we're going to create even more problems. Currently, it is legal for the banks to do business with us. We are legal and legitimate business. In 2014, Eric Holder and Barack Obama, President Obama, put guidance in to the banking rules. Not law change, but guidance in saying if they are operating 
open, operating, and compliant, feel free to do business with them. That actually helped me for about a year with one of my banks. But that's a really big challenge because, you know, we're moving from a black market industry to a highly regulated, above-board industry doing the right things to hold us back to what I'll call, you know, the old way of banking, cash, is really detrimental in many ways. Number one, companies may be tempted to play with their cash because cash is not easy, as easily accounted for as a, as a checking account would be. A checking account, you have paper trails, you have checks, you have receipts. With cash, you may not have all that, all those paper trails. Second is the safety and security of staff as well as anybody involved with the business. If you don't have banking, you can't have credit cards. And there's absolutely no reason why our patients shouldn't be allowed to use their credit cards for their purchases or their debit cards. Um, so those are two very important issues. The other one that is just as important that needs to be resolved, again, to bring us all back so that we're just as professional as Walgreens or CVS or American Airlines, which are also highly regulated businesses, is allow is allow us the proper treatment from the IRS in refer, reference to expenses. Uh, there's a law called 280E. There's a law that says that we're not allowed to take deduction on our expenses because we sell or handle a federally illegal substance. See, that just seems so absurd to me that we are still grappling with these issues. Me too, because I see it on a daily basis. It's frustrating for the patient. Um, we did have credit card processing. We did have banking at times. And right now we don't. And so for the patients, it's frustrating that they can't use their credit cards and they need to purchase more than they might have on, in cash on themselves. But along those lines, patients can't write off their purchases either and use their flex spending account. And obviously, it's not covered under insurance or anything else. I know that Congress passed the States Act, which basically would resolve some of these issues. But for some reason, they're unable to get that voted upon in the Senate. Yeah, so I was going to say, Congress, the House passed it, but not Right. Yeah. And the Senate is just holding it up. For what reason, I have no idea, because you'd think that the conservative party would be more amenable to eliminating some of the government control. Not until we fill their voting coffers with more dollars than the pharmaceuticals and the law enforcement agencies and the prison companies, churches, and whoever else is filling their political campaigns. And, of course, the next biggest lobby in the criminal justice arena would be the bail bonds. <laughs> I mean, they're making bank off of cannabis prosecutions. Mm -hmm. Well, I think cannabis still to this day has so many special interests against it. And it's really a shame. And we need to we need to change that. But voices need to be heard. And if you really believe in this issue and you want to see cannabis legitimized as a business, people should pick up the phone and call their congressional reps and their senators, especially, and say, hey, look, we've got ways to address some of these issues. Please just bring it to the floor. Let our senators vote on it. It's crazy to me that we're still going through this. Well, like I said, the, the, the industries that don't want to see us succeed keep coming after us every chance they get. Um, they're all excited about the new vaping issue. But let me go back to the banking thing. Um, we have had offers of banking recently. It's just they're a little expensive. One offer was, I think it was $1,000 a month and 10% uh, of our deposit. That seems criminal to me. That seems like extortion or, at the very least, price gouging. I, I call I, it pot pricing. Yeah. Um, the next one was we did get one more offer, and this one's even crazier. So if we took up another line of business, meaning we took a loan on another business or a property, then they might do business with us. But they couldn't tell us the cost. That's absurd. And you don't have to divulge their name, but... but 
Gosh. In, in the previous six years, honestly, I had banking. I worked in the banks. I didn't say, hey, I'm a dispensary. They didn't ask. I gave them my articles of incorporation, which does say that we're a dispensary on there. But we would usually open in for several months, be fine. One time I was open ready for three years. It was fantastic. But um, this past year, I've been through four banks. And it's very frustrating. And um, when they when you leave, they'll give you a check that's in the name of the business that you can't cash unless you have another account. That's nuts. It, it absolutely is. And, uh, same thing with the uh, credit card companies, because you need to have that deposited into your bank account. So, you know, the banking, banking and IRS are big issues. As far as what's, what else is facing us here in Arizona, next year we're going to be faced with some pretty strict uh, testing rules. And I am a proponent of testing. Um, I'm just not convinced that that the um, quality of testing in our state is is reliable. I think we need to have a kind of a, a standard of testing. And my suggestion would be for the state of Arizona to administer the testing. They've been collecting more than $50 million is at the state right now in our fees for our cards and our licenses. And they don't know what to do with the money. My suggestion would be for them to provide the standardized testing for all of us at a not-for-profit rate. Because right now, I, we, we have sent our product out to different labs and, and gotten different results. And that's what's concerning if, if you're looking for complete accuracy or standardization. The other suggestion I have is, you know, as dispensaries, we're all supposed to have a, uh, we all have a doctor assigned, you know, to our dispensary that we pay for, and it's quite costly. Um, those doctors are there to answer calls that they might receive, but they, no one makes these calls. Plus, again, my point is, if you call my dispensary, my doctor might say something different than another doctor might at another dispensary. And I think the patient should be getting the same, you know, saying the same information to follow. Absolutely, I do. And you know, again, this goes back to yet another national uh, issue. You know, doctors who they cannot quote unquote prescribe because it's still illegal under DEA rules for a licensed medical doctor to do it. So, if a doctor really wants to immerse himself or herself into cannabis, then you know, it's possible they may have to relinquish their DEA license to do it, which takes them out of the running to work for hospitals, you know, and that's another huge issue. I'm not aware of that in Arizona because the doctor we work with, who's Dr. Sue Sisley, I do think she's still able to write prescriptions. I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. But the only thing she's restricted from if she's writing referrals for the dispensaries, she can't be our house doctor and vice versa. Our house doctor, she cannot write referrals for patients. Sue Sisley, ugh. almost every single interview, her name comes up. She is such a champion of this industry. She's done so much in terms of education and she's been through so much in terms of trying to get her studies approved. It's awesome that she's working with you because she is so incredibly knowledgeable. We're very happy to have her and work with her. Well, you'll have to tell her hello for me, and um, I definitely would love to get her back in here for an interview, too. But I was going to say also, though, I know that there are a number of doctors who do work in private practice. They can make recommendations, but they can't prescribe canvas. But one of the problems, and um, and in fact, mentioning Sue Sisley, about two and a half years ago, she was on the show and we talked about the conundrum of no mention at that point. There were maybe a couple of schools that in one class would mention cannabis, but there was absolutely no study available for medical doctors on the endocannabinoid system. So when you talk about patients trying to get consistent information about different uh, cannabinoid profiles that would work with different conditions, each doctor seems to have his or her own specialty. And so they know about the ways in which certain cannabinoid profiles would work with a certain medical condition, but they don't know all of them. And so you're right, there's, there's this sort of 
and consistency for the patients who are really looking for reliable information. The doctors should have some kind of um, continued medical education certification or something like that so that they're all working with the same deck of cards. They're all working with the same information about the medicine that is out there and what it can do. But again, this, this goes back to the importance of making some noise and contacting their reps. It's funny. You, you learn over time <laughs> as these laws get written and you, then you see them enacted and how they actually occur. A lot of them that'll be on the next ballot, and they won't be perfect, but there'll be progress. And we can make them better going forward. And unfortunately, our last one didn't pass here in Arizona, but because it didn't pass, roughly 10,000 people were charged with marijuana penalties in the last couple of years. And whether it's perfect or not, it would have prevented that. That was a lesson in all of the different factions of advocacy and activism of cannabis working together as opposed to opposing one another, because I know there were issues with one bill got on the measure and one bill didn't. And then the one that didn't, there were a lot of angry cannabis users out there who just didn't want to support that law and didn't vote for it. And, you know, it, it basically burned the opportunity for everyone. It's very sad. Yeah. So I, I'll be honest. I don't think that that other proposition wouldn't have passed if it got on the ballot. I would have voted for it but it wouldn't have passed. Uh, one, of the, one of the clauses in there would have allowed basically every, every patient to grow 48 plants in their home and up to 96 per property. And I happen to love cannabis, but I wouldn't want to live next to 96 plants being in flower. We need to be conscious of, of the voting public. And that initiative also, I think they raised $11,000 and spent 12000 trying to get it passed. Um, the thing that I think kept that initiative from passing was there was a clause put in there, and I never agreed with this one, but there was a clause in there that said the head shops would now be um, regulated by the new marijuana division. And uh, that's something I did not agree with. Neither did the... Uh, head shops. They didn't want to be regulated either. So a very warm voting market for us was basically told to not vote for us, which was the recreational users that came into the head shops. That's an interesting angle that I hadn't considered before. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. Yeah. yeah 70,000 votes was the difference on that one. And um, with that initiative being out about two years, I have several friends that have and are involved with head shops, and that's the message they were sending. Very interesting. I hope that this one passes. There's a lot of momentum. It, we need to pass it. it um, again, no, nothing's going to be perfect. Nothing's going to make everybody happy, but um, hopefully we can you know, pass it, keep, keep people out of jail. I know. And, and keeping people out of prison is a big issue. I interviewed Steve D'Angelo a couple of weeks ago, and he just launched a new organization called The Last Prison Project. And their goal is to make sure that everyone who's been incarcerated for cannabis is released and or exonerated to the point where their records can be expunged so that they can get back to being eligible to get jobs and get housing and to vote and because that's a huge portion of our when you consider how many millions of people have been imprisoned for nonviolent cannabis crimes and especially the dis the racial disparity and how it's affected certain communities and certainly wrecked millions of families you know it's about time that we start making it right because Going back to what you said in the beginning about how cannabis prohibition was just such a big lie, it seems criminal that people are still sitting in prison for marijuana possession charges. It's just ridiculous. So what else, Steve? You mentioned other challenges that the industry faces. Um, you know, it's... Um, it's really still a little bit of support in the media, in the local media. You know, we're gaining it. For some reason, it's still sensationalized when you look at the TV news. Oftentimes, 
if there is a negative to a story, that's that's what's played, as opposed to the solutions or the or the good things that we're doing. It's something that we need to come, you know, be a little bit better at. Is is kind of tooting our own horn when we're when we're saving lives. Because I do think, you know, I I, I feel we save more lives than than I'll get in a lot of trouble for saying this than, than most doctors on a regular basis. Um, people come in here to our shop daily that are that are relieving themselves of, of not just a few prescription medications, but some really serious prescription medications. Well, clearly, opiate use has gone down in places where they've legalized for adult use. And there's no question now. I mean, I think the research really supports the fact that cannabis is more of an exit drug than an entry drug or a gateway drug, as it's been known. But it, going back to the media, I think that it's it's really all about ending the stigma because despite all of the success around cannabis, it's still sort of a closeted issue. And it, it, it still seems like such an anomaly to mainstream media to cover. So when there is a story that is negative, of course, they, they do go after that. But I think that ending the stigma is going to change so much. And it's just a matter of education all around. Education, education, education. I like to call it weedication. Weedication? <laughs> one a day, every day. <laughs> That's good. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> it comes from it comes from we educate. We you know. That was uh, that's actually we. I actually used to do a podcast many moons ago. That was our podcast. But um, what are some other challenges? Getting more people their cards, getting the cards to be more pro- for more appropriate conditions that aren't covered already. I think, you know, they did a nice thing this year by expanding it to a two-year card. And that's a nice step, but I really believe that for, you know, if you have Alzheimer's or AIDS or any condition, Parkinson's, MS, that is, I mean, terminal, you're, 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 it's never going to leave your body. Why in the world should we make you pay for a new card every two years now? Or worse, lock you up. Right, right. Well, I, exactly. But I think it's really cruel. It's hard enough for a 22-year-old to figure out how to enter and punch into things to get their card, much less an aged person with Alzheimer's. To me, it's just wrong. I know. That's crazy. And, well, and not only that, but people living off of $700 a month, how are they going to afford $300 for getting a medical card, not to mention having to buy medicine that is not covered by Medicare. So, again, yeah. if they let me run the program, uh, you and I would pay 25 for our card. And if you're low income, and it's a dollar. The state's made enough money off of the cards. We need to, we need to improve access to the patient. Right. Well, and there are people who buy cannabis to treat conditions that they've been unable to treat or fix with conventional pharmaceuticals who have foregone their insurance so that they can afford to buy cannabis because the insurance doesn't cover it. And that poses another health risk altogether. You know, being without insurance, I tell you what, it's scary. But for some of the people with conditions that cannabis is really the only medicine that's working, why pay the insurance in their mind, you know? It is costly. The whole program could be a lot better. There was um, one other issue I was going to mention that's come up, and you mentioned the Jones case. The Jones case was great for many things except there is one caveat to that that came out and you might might not be aware of is you're causing the state health department to ask the producers of edibles and concentrates to allocate the amount of flour that was used to produce that concentrate in the product, not the amount of concentrate in the product. So now a gram of wax will actually count for four grams off of your weight. What's bad about that is a friend of mine who who, uh, who did beat his cancer uh, using RSO would not have been able to buy the amount of RSO he needed to beat his cancer. You're the first person I've heard talk about that. 
And that's a problem. I, I've said it to the state, to a few of their employees, and they get upset, but I said, I know it's not your law. The state is going to kill people because if you don't allow an RSO patient to buy the necessary gram a day, which is, you know, 14 grams over 14 days, you know, if they're being, you know, thought on, um, they should be allowed to buy 70 grams, but they're only allowed to, I think, buy five, five or eight, based on the new weightings. That's not enough. That is definitely a problem. Yeah, I I wasn't fully aware of this, and it's something I'm going to look into. Yeah, that needs to change. Two other problems from that. Number one is the state has only told some of the dispensaries and some of the producers they must follow this rule. So truthfully, we have some product on our shelf that is older from some of these older producers that aren't doing it yet and haven't followed the rule yet because they haven't been inspected yet this year. And so it, it's going to be this chain reaction. It'll, it'll be finished off in the next month or two, but but it is real. Um, there was one other part. Oh, <laughs> and now what that whole story has caused is now Maricopa County's the newest producer of wax. The county deputies are, are making wax. And the reason, the only reason they're doing that is so they can learn how much flour it takes to make a gram of wax. That's what your tax dollars are being used on. And actually, it's illegal for them to be doing it. I don't, they, unless they're cardholders, and I wasn't aware of any active PD that was allowed to be a cardholder. So I'm not sure how that's all working. You read my mind. I was thinking that. How is that legal for them to be doing it unless they're licensed? I mean, if Bill Montgomery wanted to arrest all my friends that were, you know, like he did back in the day for, for, for making and possessing wax, why are these deputies allowed to? It's not necessary science. Trust me. <laughs> the information's out there. They don't need to be doing it. They're using all the stuff they stole from their raids and so forth, which also might not be safe. I would think they're putting their lives at risk, to tell you the truth, a little bit, using stuff that they've confiscated. You know, at least our stuff is inspected when you're usually buying it new from the manufacturers. But it's just nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. That's, that's the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. It is just nuts. Every day is a little different. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many absurdities going on right now. I feel like we're living in the twilight zone. And I said to my better half yesterday, I feel like I've been walking around in kind of a nightmare and I'm going to wake up and it's going to be 2016 and the elections tomorrow. And it, <laughs> But I digress. The only thing that's good about it is I keep telling myself it's all happening for a reason. It's going to be a lot better. So <laughs> hopefully it does get better. Um, it uh, It is a little bit crazy. Every day is a little different here. You know, some days you never know what you're going to find, though. We've got... Uh, We've had a lot of uh, a lot of different experiences. We have some great patients. Let me say that their hearts are so big. Some of them, my wife broke her toe, <laughs> and one of them happened to hear that out in the store. They brought her in a brand new pair of shoes they thought would help her with the broken toe. That's a random act of kindness. I love that. Another one brings brings in donuts on the weekend. <laughs> So <laughs> uh, I, I was telling you, you better let me know when you're coming so I can, you know, I'll play or something. But uh, no, we've got some great patients. We do get about 5% that still drive about an hour down from our old shop. It's a lot of fun. It's it's a neat, it's really a neat experience. Um, I, I had another owner once tell me, you're not in this business until patients cried on his shoulder and thanked you for bettering, making their life better. And it's kind of true, but it usually only takes about a week or two for a bud tender to get that experience and get that thank you. You change people's lives when you take the pills out of their lives. That just gave me goosebumps when you said that. And, and when you help them sleep. There was another point that we were talking about earlier. One of the things 
So I had a couple of epiphanies or, or realizations. One is I knew we were going to take pills out of the patient's hands. I knew that we were going to reduce their usage. I mean, completely honest, I thought it was maybe one or probably two pills a day on average was, was my guess. I will tell you that just after probably two years up in, up in the small town up in Superior, I'll tell you, I think that the average was about 10 pills a day. Now, if you do 10 pills a day, and they're on average, that's the average patient. So some are taking 20 or more, and I'll tell you, we have a lot of those people, and it's shocking, scary. It's almost maddening when someone comes in and tells you they're taking like 20, 25 pills a day. <laughs> like, what do you eat? What's your stomach going to look like? Oh, and your liver. <laughs> Imagine, because a lot of those synthetic drugs, uh, your body is just not equipped to process. What I found with my father when he was ill was that all of these pills that he was taking, I'd say at least half of them were to deal with the side effects of the other half of the drugs that he was taking. And his liver couldn't handle it. Uh, yeah. And I, he, was, he was never in favor of cannabis. And it wasn't until he got sick and was sort of unaware of his surroundings he went into a coma. But he started coming out of it. And he was doing really well. He was, you know, getting his speech back. And he was, you know, coherent and cognizant of everything around him but he was irritated by a feeding tube and kept trying to pull it out and without our knowledge they put him on a cocktail of Haldol and um, Ativan and he went right back into the coma it was like they flipped the switch and he never fully recovered after that and uh, again he was recovering and I was sneaking in CBD and THCA because he had this uncontrollable infection and then CBD with a little bit of THC for nighttime. And he started doing really well again until they started trying to control him. He tried to get up on his own. And, you know, you have six nurses holding you down by the shoulders and the knees and not letting you get out of your chair. What are you going to do? You're going to swing, right? He weighed 150 pounds at that point, you know, six foot two, 150 pounds. That's very thin, very frail. But they said, he's a danger to our staff. And so the doctors put him back on Ativan. And again, he went right back into a coma. So it was like, you know, clearly this drug is toxic to him. And, you know, finally, I just pulled him out of there. And I found a place, luckily, that will allow me to bring cannabis. And I had a concierge doctor come and we got his license. And he was on cannabis. And he lived out the remaining year and a half of his life not as coherent as he was the first time he came out of the coma, but cannabis improved his quality of life so much that at least he was not suffering. And when he died, he, you know, it was just his time. Part of my argument in all that you just told me too is you mentioned your, your dad was 150 pounds. And I guarantee you they did not adjust any of his dosages from when he went from 200 to 150. And the same guy no. in the facility weighing 200 or 100 was getting the same medication. And that's where, that's just malpractice in my opinion. But, you know, I weigh 200 pounds. To, my mom weighs 120, let's say. So you give her the same pill as you give me. Again, it's malpractice. It, 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 our weights are different. They should be giving, they should be prescribing based on that as well. You know what I mean? As well, well as metabolisms. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're on the same I mean, page. And you, the story you <laughs> said about the feeding tube actually really got, reminded me of my, my, one of my good friends, one of my motivations. I mentioned the story, looks like a jewelry store. It's a little bit of a tribute to my friend Alan, who Alan Miller passed away at 42. He uh, died cancer free. They killed him looking for more cancer. Um, he had he beat two tumors, Hodgkin's lymphomas, uh, one next to his vocal cord and one next to his esophagus. And um, it was the one on the esophagus. They decided they wanted to look and see if there was more cancer before they went after. They gave him chemo and radiation for, for, the, for that one. He had already beaten the, the one on his vocal cord and was deemed cancer-free for a few months. But uh, the second one popped up, and uh, the doctors, uh, they do a scope. 
unfortunately, my friend had been through the chemo and radiation on his on his vocal cords, so it was his body was a little worn. So when they went looking uh, in the esophagus uh, with this camera lens um, scope, they poked a hole and tore. Uh, tore. Uh, it was like a wet paper towel at, the, at that time. You cannot sleep horizontal or eat solid food again while battling this tumor and so they wanted to wait until the esophagus healed up before going and giving some more radiation and they did and they waited and it was almost healed up but they said the tumor was starting to move and they decided to go after the tumor and about a month later Again, he was deemed cancer-free. He was, they, they got it. They got it all. And he was still having problems with the hole, his esophagus. And so, beautifully, his neighbors decided to throw a fundraiser in for him to help pay for you know all the stuff that wasn't covered. I actually flew in for it to surprise him. I didn't tell him I was coming. And um, Alan didn't come. He didn't come to his own party. And I was actually a little upset with him. Sadly, he he had uh, gotten himself worked so excited and worked up over the party that he aspirated. He never he, he went to the hospital that that next morning, and uh, he put a feeding tube in him a, a few about a week later, and, and uh, he took it out after a day. He didn't want to live that way. He was a great man, a great friend. He held on. I actually flew back to see him one last time, and uh, it was amazing. He kind of he held on to. Talk to me and his wife one last time, and then he left. Then he left. I'm so sorry. Yeah, but Alan, Alan's a big motivation because uh, when he was going through what he was going through, I said, this was uh, 12 years ago, and I didn't know any better because I had no idea what RSO could do or anything else. I just, and um, so sadly, he never got to try medical marijuana, really. And... Um, we will we will have a strain for him one day and, and a special edible made for him once the kitchen fires up again. But uh, he's one of my motivations, and, and just and I learned a lot um, after uh, today. I would have suggested he take RSO and maybe even forego the radiation. And who knows? Maybe they wouldn't have looked for more cancer. I don't know, but we didn't know that then. It's frightening that the procedures that are used to diagnose can cause so much damage, but uh, sometimes they're a necessary evil, but I'm so sorry to hear that he went through that. That's tragic. The one other thing I noticed you mentioned, things you learned over the years, is, um, you know, everyone says that, you know, oh, there's all these people, there's all stoners, they're just getting their cards, and, and I'll argue that uh, I thought a little bit of that as well before the industry, before I got the industry and opened the store. And I'll tell you that, uh, 70 to 90% of the people that are using marijuana, I believe, are using it medically whether they know it or not. What that means is a lot of people, yes, do have the medical cards, and there's probably a few people that should have their cards that just don't. But I'll argue that most of the other people that just think they're using it recreationally don't realize it, but they're actually sleeping better or they're calmer. They're not drinking as much. They don't take yeah. as many of their pills. Their stomachs feel better. They go to the bathroom better. Their memory's better. I mean, that's the other one that's such a misnomer is on memory. Marijuana really rebuilds brain cells. It doesn't build brain cells. You're losing your memory. It's not from marijuana. One of our cases that's most exciting is I love to work with law enforcement when possible and uh, in a proactive way. And uh, we have a former officer. We've worked with several one we did, we did solve his first cancer, and uh, sadly his second. Um, another one though, his mother-in-law uh, has had Alzheimer's now, going about two years now, and she's so no progression. She actually seems fresher than the day I met her two years ago, and they credit cannabis. It's helping so many, but I think you're absolutely right to say that a lot of people who are using cannabis um, socially, as you say, are self-medicating without knowing it. And 
when you have a craving for something, it's because your body needs it. If you are craving chocolate, chances are you're needing some of the antioxidants that exist in chocolate. And perhaps you need the CBD that's in chocolate because there is some, not much, but there is some. And I think the same goes for cannabis. There are a lot of teens who gravitate toward it because it actually helps them to focus or it makes them feel less anxious. That was me. That was me, honestly. I, I enjoyed it through high school and college. I got out of college and all my friends were quitting for work or jobs or, or spouses. And I enjoyed it. I would go to work some days and sit down at my desk and could not get started. There was too much staring at me. I couldn't figure out where to get going. Go outside, take a few puffs, come back in, done by noon. Just became task-oriented. It gave me focus. And I never thought of myself as someone with ADHD or anything like that. But when I look back on it, it's exactly what it was. And so I was medicating without knowing it. Sure, some of them want to see stars and giggle and laugh and listen to Pink Floyd. And that can be therapeutic and medical too. But it's not that old commercial, this is your brain on drugs. It's not that. Yeah. You know, if anything, it turns on your brain, in my opinion. It's a, it acts as a sensory enhancer in many ways. Yeah. If you decide you want to go the other way, you'll go the other way. Well, there are some people now who are trying to correlate the uptick in gun violence to cannabis use, <laughs> which is the most ridiculous thing. I mean, clearly they've never um, imbibed in cannabis themselves because if they did, they'd realize that cannabis does not trigger violent outbursts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and some people correlate cannabis with psychosis for people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia. And there's never been any proof to say that cannabis will trigger psychotic breaks. But I think we do need to remain objective. And there's not enough research to rule it out. So these people are getting away with saying these things. They're doing research based on reefer madness, madness. And it's really quite a shame. There's no research to rule right. it out because there really hasn't been. But all those reports and all these things are being based on opinion papers. These aren't real research in numbers in America with no biases and tests, you know, and, and placebos or anything. These are just opinion papers that are funded by either NIDA, our government, which is NIDA, but by groups that don't want to see the positive effects. We had this exact discussion with Sue Sicily on Monday. It was asked, do you see cannabis contributing to psychosis or depression? or any of these negativities that you're hearing about. And she said, absolutely not. These are opinion papers. These are not, these are people's opinions because they've looked at other people's opinions, basically regurgitating it to uh, create the message that they're being paid to create. And if anybody would know for sure, it would be Sue Sisley. She's an MD who is a psychiatrist. So she would be well aware let me ask you something, because it's in the news, the vaping problem and these deaths that are occurring, is it possible that it's the metallic nature of the cartridge as much as it could be, you know, the ingredients? Yeah, I, I don't believe so. I believe it's the ingredients mm -hmm. um, because most of us are using cartridges that are coming from wherever, China or some are made in the U.S., but there's, even if they're different cartridges, they're, they're not, their composition is, I don't believe it, that different to me. But it's what goes into the cartridge. And if this was a real problem to cannabis, it would have exploded in Colorado five years ago. Yeah. You would have been hearing it drastically. What this is is a recent discovery of using vitamin E as the thinning agent for the oils. Mostly it's occurring in, in nicotine products. However, I did hear of one cannabis product out of Oregon that was pulled off the shelves. That was in a dispensary. Uh, that, was in, that was in Oregon that I know of. In Arizona, we've talked to our manufacturers, nothing we carry has anything close to vitamin E 
we don't carry anything that even has coconut oil because we don't believe that to be healthy. Uh, the terpenes we carry are all cannabis-derived terpenes or derived from plants and not from anything else, not PG, not PFG, or coconut oil. And it's really important what you use. Uh, I hope that I'm correct, absolutely accurate in what I'm telling you, but as far as I know, that's what I've seen. The Again, vitamin E was probably chosen because people thought they were giving people something healthy as, as a vitamin as well as maybe less expensive than cannabis terpenes to use as a thinning agent, particularly in the cannabis products. Yeah, that's interesting. And yeah, I was curious about that because what struck me is that it's entirely possible that this vaping issue could be used against the cannabis industry when it comes to pending legislation and it's pretty scary, and, and we certainly don't need any big mishap like this to be associated specifically with cannabis. And some of the people who are talking about this are saying, yeah, children are becoming addicted to marijuana vaping, you know, which couldn't be farther from the truth. It's more that nicotine causing this huge problem among teens, although I'm sure that there's black market cannabis out there that is unsafe which is another reason we need to have an end to prohibition. But You bring up a good point about the, about the, about the nicotine and the jewels and so forth. And it, to me, that's, I find that those are something to be really concerned about, to keep those out of the hands of the children, patients, and everybody, because they're, they're nicotine-based, and it's highly addictive. It doesn't smell. It, they think they're safe and being healthy. And after two or three weeks, a 14-year-old is going to be addicted and not know how to stop. That's really scary to me. <laughs> Whereas with cannabis, it's not going to be physically addictive to them. Right. Um, this is a, this, that, is going to be, that is a big epidemic right now. It's kind of an unspoken one because all the nice kids are doing it. And no one wants to admit their nice kids are doing it. There are so many issues that we need to address around this. and You know what? Um, I started really learning about cannabis. I mean, I've studied it for a long time. But I learned the most, say, since 2009 or 10, because that's when I really, I felt that it worked for me for pain. I had used it for other things, but I tried salves and tinctures in 2009 and was amazed because... I actually thought it might be a little bit of urban myth until I tried it. And, but no, it's, it's really all education, learning about all the products. I would welcome anybody who's afraid of marijuana or cannabis or, or the dispensaries to go one day with some classes and try to have an open mind. Uh, next door, uh -huh. we have a uh, conference room that we may use to put on some intro classes, kind of a cannabis for new consumers, maybe. But uh, something something that we educate them and, and make them realize it's not what the government told us. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think you're right. Oh, well, I'm getting the signal that it is time for us to wrap this up. So this has been just such an enjoyable conversation. And I'm so happy that you were able to join me. So thank you, Steve. No, definitely. I appreciate it. Maybe we'd come out here sometime. I'd love to show you the store. Yeah, I would love to do that. Oh, so it is time to bring yet another episode to a close. Once again, I'd like to personally thank my guest, Steve Shapiro, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that he's doing at Superior Organics, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And there you will find his bio along with information and a link to his website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude to our partners, Canisphere Biotech. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our production team here at The Cannabis Reporter for always making us shine. And it goes without saying just how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, 
Thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling.